Neat. What makes you happy? That is a good question. Um, I think I've realized more and more it doesn't take very much to make me happy. Uh, as far as, like, an average day goes, I realize all it takes, like, kind of almost the, at this point, a guaranteed process to feel happy is if I get a good workout in, take a nice shower, especially, like, if I if I took, like, a, did a workout that made me feel, like, really, really warm or sweaty, and then I took, like, a cold shower, mm-hmm. that's a great feeling. And then if I eat a lot of food, like, <laughs> if I yeah, yeah. hit boom, 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 the workout, shower, and food, especially if I've, like, gotten to go to mass and maybe confession in that day. Mm-hmm. That for me is just prime like bliss. Prime. Like that's all it takes for me at this point to, to have a really good happy day. But what makes you happy? Oh, um honestly a lot of the same. And I would also just say like just like a really quality conversation with mm-hmm. someone. Yeah. You know, we're we're not trying to rush anything. We didn't like necessarily plan it, but it just kinda happened. Oh, those are the best. And then you realize it was like an hour and a half later mm-hmm. and you're like that was awesome. Yeah. And it wasn't forced. Yeah, just really quality time with someone or quality right. time with Jesus in prayer. Scripture definitely makes me happy. I love scripture. Yeah. Especially um, the gospels. Yeah, the gospels are five. St. Paul too. Um but is to be happy and happiness. Is that this like to feel happy and to be happy? Are those the same thing? Like uh, like we talked about emotions, you know, mm-hmm. a while ago, and I feel like we could have the emotion of being happy right or content right that was one of those emotions but does that equate to actually to be happy like Mm -hmm. as a state well you can feel emotional pleasure or fun um but not be living a happy life i think because properly a like happiness often what what we mean by it or the happy life the good life that comes from um that the full idea that is kind of encaptured in this one uh, Greek word, uh, eudaimonia. Mm. I don't know Greek, so I'm not probably pronouncing it quite right. That's probably that's pretty but close. Basically, what it means is um, living well. Mm. So, you know, sometimes when we hear the word happiness, we imagine an emotion. But properly, I think the best understanding of happiness lies in how you live your life. So, someone who's living a like very disordered or like sinful life but feels pleasure i don't think i would call it happiness certainly not a good life right not not a good life but it, I, I wouldn't even call it like true happiness even though they might feel feelings of pleasure and yeah, what yeah. you might call oh they feel happy I, that really isn't happiness happiness i imagine is most um like captured in kind of essentially in the example of like saints or christ who lived truly good lives I mean, obviously, like we we would consider heaven is the ultimate yeah, happiness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, and I just drawing the distinction between happiness and joy, at least in Christianity, which I think we've talked about before. But joy being like contentedness in like your identity and who you are, regardless of how you feel, mm-hmm. and accepting everything that the Father gives you, mm-hmm. rather than regardless of if you the feel it or not. You know. Yeah. Um, well, okay, so you're using the, the phrase the good life. That's a very philosophical thing, actually. Yeah. That's that's a center for, especially ethics. Um, Definitely. Like, what is what does it mean to be good? And what does it to mean to live a good life? What does mm-hmm. it mean? What is the good life? Mm-hmm. I, I, Aristotle talks about a specific the good life as right. 
that there is only one. Um, it's not up to just anybody's opinion. There is right. one true life. What what is the good life, and what does it mean to be, to have happiness in the good life, according to Aristotle? According to Aristotle, I mean, I've studied a little bit, but you literally read the Nicomachean Ethics like straight through, so I'm sure you know a little bit more than I do about that. Well, yeah, this this past year in philosophy, that was kind of one of the main uh, subjects of our focus. I think for Aristotle, the good life is basically a life of philosophical contemplation. Uh, it's a life of in which your passions are rightly ordered according to virtue mm-hmm. um, and you're free from kind of a lot of earthly troubles and concerns and basically with those troubles aside and with your your passions rightly ordered in virtue you're able to just focus on what matters most which for him is contemplation so you're in your mind thinking about like the highest truths and philosophizing would he would he say contemplation of the divine see he sort of sort of refers at times to like divinity or the supreme mm-hmm. good or power is it the contemplation of divine or just contemplation of higher things in general that's a good question um i wish I mean, aquinas would definitely say contemplation of the divine right certainly i think to some extent uh at a certain point for aristotle it would be almost inseparable that actually, yeah, that like, makes sense. When you get to the very highest things, in some that sense, yeah, I think he does recognize God, they're basically. divine, right? Obviously, he's not a Platonist, yeah, um, but he does recognize like that what is eternal is the highest thing. Mm-hmm. And until until you get to that pure contemplation, mm-hmm. you don't have happiness, right? In some sense, yeah. You certainly until you are kind of free from earthly concerns. And from, like, having to take care of the daily necessities he would, like, or worries about mm-hmm. your passions being disordered, he definitely wouldn't consider those kind of people who are still working through those struggles um, happy. But once you're kind of free uh, to, you know, you have free time to contemplate, you have the right uh, ordering of your mind and soul to contemplate. And that, your desires, like, are ordered to want to contemplate. Exactly. That's when I think... Aristotle would consider you so it's happy. Metaphysics, basically. Right? Yeah, Cause, basically. So, because meta, the word meta could be translated as either after the physics or beyond the physics, because uh, it was written after and it comes mm-hmm. after. But it could also mean beyond the as physics and doesn't mean like you know motion. Newton, well, actually, yeah. it does mean motion, uh, but it doesn't mean it like means force, nature most fundamentally. Right? Yeah, you know, and momentum, those kind of things. But like earthly. Na- natural things mm-hmm. so it's be so beyond the natural is where eventually philosophy is supposed to lead us yeah um so really doing metaphysics then and loving doing metaphysics which having taken metaphysics i liked it i can't say i might ever come to a point of loving it mm-hmm. but that's because you're still a slave yeah <laughs> you're not you have not you've not yet reached this aristotelian happiness yeah well that's i can verify that um but okay so aristotle's understanding then of this contemplation especially what you said about you being free from any kind of earthly or or natural influences yeah um distractions almost then it would seem that it's only contemplative eventually right that that Mm -hmm. there's almost no active component to aristotle's definition yeah of happiness and the good life Mm -hmm. reach when reaching the end is to almost rid yourself of the active obviously you still have to eat, and I think he even says like you, you still have to uh, take care of your body's needs yeah. in order to do the higher things. Right. But they should only be ever seen as 
like that which feeds the rest, which I guess right. is right. But the matter is ordered to the soul. Not but the even then, it seems like he really like sets aside every kind of active pursuit. Yeah. And and contemplative. So how how does that compare then to well Christ's example? Hmm. Um, it, because Aristotle seems to be only saying that happiness is achieved through contemplation and not really achieved. I don't know. It's, it, it's just very weird language, mm-hmm. but, but G, what about Jesus? Right. Obviously Jesus Christ set the perfect example of a life that was both active and contemplative. So of course we know that he had a perfect consideration of the higher things. I mean, he himself yeah. was God, right? And he was permanently in the communion of the Trinity then the beatific vision was always before him. Exactly. Even exactly. while on earth. Which is the highest of all high things. Right? Yeah, so you can't he's... contemplate anything higher than exactly. God. Exactly. So he was perma perma contemplating. But so, of course, there, there's that on one hand. We can't deny that he was in a state of contemplation. But on the other hand, you also can't deny that his life was active, right? Mm-hmm. Because he, he spent time in prayer, but he also went and ministered to crowds, right? And he healed yeah. people and he ate and drank. And he walked around with, you know, sinners and, you know, he, he like, rode in a boat, you know. He, he went he, like, to weddings. He and, went to weddings. He yeah. was a carpenter, right? Like, for 30 yeah. years, he worked with his hands. Of all, of all jobs, he didn't, you know, God did not choose to to send his son into a position in the world in the incarnation where he was going to be raised as, like, an emperor's son, right? He could have been the emperor's son of, of Rome. Or even a Pharisee where he was, like, trained to only study the, the law and exactly. not to do work. Exactly. No, we, we believe in a God who was a blue-collar worker. Yeah, yeah. Um. So, I mean, that's really a radical difference, I think, from Aristotle because for Aristotle, um, if you imagine... Now, a lot, of, a lot of his ideas of happiness aren't... They're not focused on any one individual. They're kind of... Uh, focused on a common good that's shared oh. by a whole community. Okay, I didn't know that. But in that community, so in a sense, it's like kind of everyone's contributing to the happiness, everyone's participating in it, but in higher or lower roles. Okay. So in some sense for him, like the lower roles would belong to the people like artisans or craftsmen, you know, carpenters, fishermen, uh, farmers, those kind of people would have a much lower sense of happiness. And they can and only it, achieve a certain level. Right. They're contributing the, the kind so of the overall materials and the raw uh, bare necessities of life so that the higher people in the city can really enjoy to the true it. fulfillment of happiness. But we believe in God who was both perfectly contemplative, but during the incarnation was yeah, literally a, cra- a carpenter yeah. and worked with his hands. So, I mean, that's, that's pretty different. Well, yeah. And um, I believe this quote is from Fulton Sheen, but he said, I was reading recently, I, I had a solemn vows retreat, uh, you know, back in June before I took vows. And that day's topic was obedience. Yeah. And so one of the monks had written a reflection. I'm 99% sure he was quoting Fulton Sheen. And he said that Christ's redemptive work was three hours. Hmm. His ministry was three years. Yeah. And his work was 30 years. And obedience. His work and obedience basically Mm -hmm. was for 30 years. So looking at the overall life of Jesus. 90%. Yeah. Was spent even more than 90% actually. Mm -hmm. Like 95% was spent being obedient to his parents mm-hmm. and just working with his hands mm-hmm. and obviously you know i'm sure he was contemplating you know the presence of the father and right but um in the face of the father but yeah he, like he's clearly showing an example that work is necessary mm-hmm. before going to ministry and before yeah. you know his sacrifice on the cross right so it would definitely seem that they have 
different I, not ideas, definitions, or, mm-hmm. or understandings of how happiness would play out. Right? Yeah, exactly. And it, especially for Aristotle, it would seem that true, full happiness is only capable. It's only a certain like echelon of people are capable of the authentic, true happiness. Mm-hmm. Whereas a carpenter could receive his type of happiness, but it's not mm-hmm. full. Only the right. philosopher who has the time and the ability to contemplate mm-hmm. the higher things mm-hmm. can get there. Whereas Jesus is showing no. Even the like the lowly carpenter is also called and like can be brought right. into this happiness. Yeah, a lowly carpenter in what would now be sort of a ghetto, you know, like yeah, Nazareth yeah. or Galilee was as the rough part of a nation that itself was kind of on the fringes of society. I mean, like Israel as a whole, you know, suffered a lot and it was under persecution from the Romans. And then but even particularly within that, he chose to live in Galilee, which is, you know, a rough around the edges kind yeah. of place. And within that, he chose to be a carpenter, you know, a guy who worked with his hands. And it's just it's just interesting because like you're, you're like we've been saying and like you just pointed out, that is does stand in a pretty direct contrast to what the good life is represented as by Aristotle. Hmm. And you can't be in doubt that Christ was living the good life I and mean, he is yeah, God yeah. itself, he is goodness itself. But just with for I have a thing of the transfiguration mm-hmm. on Mount Tabor, you know, Christ went up there and this was witnessed by obviously James, um, John and Peter. But he, he, you know, entered this state of glory and started having conversation, assumably of the highest things, you might say, with Elijah on one side, the embodiment of the prophets and all of their wisdom, and on the other side with Moses, the embodiment of the law and all of its wisdom. And for Aristotle, like, that's just like, that's like the highest of highs. Like that's like that's as good as it gets as far as life goes would be yeah, a conversation with two other minds who are brilliant and who represent all the wisdom of the past and just considering the highest things and you're in a state of perfect glory and bliss. So for Aristotle, you would never want to leave that so, state, right? Uh, Lord, let us make three tents would maybe be something that Aristotle, yeah, Aristotle would, would be to. like, yeah, build those tents, actually make them houses that are going to last like permanently because yeah. like we're staying here. We're not leaving this state. But no, for Christ, he's like, OK, this was this was nice. It was a nice afternoon. Now you we're going to go down the mountain. step down. Exactly. They have to descend Mount Tabor. They have to leave behind Elijah and, and his wisdom. They have to leave behind Moses and his wisdom. And they have to resume ordinary life among the gritty everyday sort of people. And, and what does Jesus do as soon as he comes down the mountain, but to heal a boy possessed by a demon. Right. So like immediately going back to work. Yeah. Yeah. And really gritty work. I mean, so then. How would Jesus, or how does, not how would, <laughs> we know how he does. <laughs> how does Jesus define happiness? Um, and I would say very clearly it's in the Beatitudes. Mm-hmm. Um, looking at Matthew f- chapter 5, you know, they start with blessed are they who da da da. Another translation actually can be happy are they. Right. Um, and I think maybe we should go through the Beatitudes and Let's just kind of see how, one, how what it means to actually be happy with these situations or mm-hmm. how can one find happiness in mm-hmm. especially when it's like you know those who are who those who mourn those who are persecuted it's counterintuitive yeah. to say yes i am happy so we'd have to kind of change maybe our understanding right. but then compare and contrast to what would aristotle say to each of these mm-hmm. so totally first starting with matthew 5 chapter 3 blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit. Um, I don't know if you have an, like a definition of understanding what you think poor in spirit is. To me, it's those who are 
extremely close to God in prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, they're very faithful in their prayer and, mm-hmm. and constant and like really trying to surrender everything to God, but they feel nothing like mm. the true, true dryness we talked about. They feel no consolation. Yeah, exa- they feel exactly. Des- desolation. They, they feel desolate all the time, yet their will is totally dependent on God. Mm-hmm. So the poor, and there's the kind of the spirit, their spirit longs to be consoled by God, but they're mm-hmm. not getting it ever. Mm-hmm. And, but then following it, that there's the kingdom of heaven saying like, just wait, you know, St. Peter says, uh, the suffering that we endure now is nothing compared to the glory that we will receive in heaven. Um, that I think this is Jesus kind of agreeing with that saying like, blessed are you who are dry now because mm-hmm. you would just be consoled, like, like overflowing in the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. That seems like the opposite because if you're not being consoled by like the good things, how, or the how contemplation, are you happy? Exactly. Mm-hmm. How, how do you think Aristotle respond to the poor in spirit? Well, that's, that's a good question because for one thing, just the word poor immediately, I mean, yeah. Jesus speaking of poor in spirit, not necessarily materially poor, but poor in any sense would be opposed to Aristotle's understanding. Cause like one of the main virtues that he identifies as necessary to the good life is, um, uh, magnificence, mm-hmm. which is basically being wealthy in a good way. Yeah, yeah, so right. like if you want to be, uh, you know, a truly happy man, according to Aristotle and be living the good life, you got to be a little bit loaded. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's materially, of course, but in some sense, it also carries over to a spiritual kind of wealth in that you feel uh, self-reliant and you feel self-assured. But I think, like similar to what you're saying, this beatitude from Christ is telling us that uh, I, I would almost take the poor in the spirit. I imagine them as being those who have no delusions of self-reliance or mm-hmm. independence yeah. when it comes to spiritual matters. How, how impoverished they are. Exactly. They're aware of their own poverty. Because if you imagine someone who's materially poor, they can't, you know, do anything for themselves monetarily. Mm-hmm. They're completely reliant on other people to help them if you're, you know, if you're in deep, deep-seated poverty. So with spiritual poverty, I imagine the same thing. They, they don't rely on themselves. They don't trust themselves because they know I mm. can't do this on my yeah, own. Yeah. So they have to perfectly rely on, on God's generosity to sustain mm. them. So, yeah, which for Aristotle, it's, it would seem that like you are relying on yourself to be able to get to that level of contemplation. Exactly. And the, yeah. So, and you can trust, okay, well, I'm a virtuous man and I can, yeah, I can be assured in my me. own stability, yeah. but that's, that's not mm. what it means to be poor in spirit. Mm. Let's hit up the next one. All right, go for it. Verse yeah. four. Uh, so yeah. Blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. Yeah, mourning, definitely, at least it would seem that mourning uh, is definitely something, you're mourning over something, mm-hmm. right? Which would detract loss. you from thinking about other things, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's mourning over the loss of a loved one, mourning over the fact that you lost your job, um, mourning over maybe... Uh, just not not being fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Um, that definitely sounds like a distraction. Yeah. Um, now again, if we turn that morning into some kind of prayer, mm-hmm. I guess we could lay, raise it to like a level of contemplation. But I think Aristotle would basically say like, unless your contemplation is simply pure, mm-hmm. like other things can't bring like this morning can't be turned into contemplation. Yeah. I don't think for Aristotle. Right. Um, but Christ I think is calling us to a, like a level of contemplation. In our brokenness, mm-hmm. and not that we have to supersede our brokenness in order to reach contemplation, which I think Aristotle is definitely getting at. 
So you, you're almost saying you would imagine Aristotle would take mourning as a kind of distraction to yeah. contemplation, but Christ would call us to unite exactly it as a form of contemplation. You, you can, yeah. And also, I I just think that Aristotle, or just I guess plainly speaking, not not just purely from Aristotle's perspective, but just the way I see it, um, mourning involves the loss of some good. We we yeah. mourn the loss of some good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But for so Aristotle, good the then? good life requires the possession of, of every good. All that is good. So if you're in a state of loss and you've you're missing mm. out on some good, how could you possibly be living the complete life, the the good life, according to Aristotle? But with Christ, we're like, no, we can acknowledge we can miss out on something good. Um, but it can be offered up for a greater good. Yeah. In the form of redemptive suffering. I mean, that's what Christ underwent on the cross. He was um missing out on the good of life and comfort for the sake of the redemption of mankind. I don't think Aristotle would be able to look at the cross and be like, oh, that's a that's a good thing. Oh, no, definitely <laughs> it, not. It wouldn't, it wouldn't make any sense, right? And how, it just seemed also, you know, how is it to be blessed or how can we say happy are those who mourn? It just, it, it sounds it's like an absolute yeah. oxymoron. No, absolutely. Um, and that's... That's a lot of our faith. I think, yeah, that's actually... Paradox you know, is essential you know, to The virgin who conceived a son, mm-hmm. the... The God, God who, who became, became man. Yeah. And all of these things, oh, dude, if you that, think about them too hard. It boggles the mind. That's, yeah. that's been the crazy thing, uh, working our way in my theology class this past year through the prima pars of the Summa Theologiae. Yeah. Every time like we go through stuff about God, like God's attributes, it's like I'm just waiting till we get to the incarnation. It's all like flipped on its head because yeah, it's like, right. you know, one big thing, God has no matter in form. It's like, uh, he's about to become incarnate yeah. as a man. Like, how is any of this going to work? But it's like, yeah, so much, so much of our faith is paradox yeah oh, but we just call it mystery and you know, mm, yeah it's, it's incredible um okay verse five the next one blessed are the meek for they will inherit the land mm. um now i don't i don't know if aristotle would totally hate this one um i, I think he would but go ahead well may, maybe what i'm understanding is meek um i mean i think he would i think he would disagree with it as because the philosopher has the right and like they know they clearly they know more than everyone else mm-hmm. um but i think like to be meek just like to almost receive mm-hmm. like ex- like receiving everything that comes to you yeah um contemplation at least to me is to like just receive like what god is giving me and just yeah. to be okay with that so to receive like the thoughts of the higher things or to receive what is good in my mind i feel like could be twisted into some kind of understanding of meekness, but I don't. I know that is not the entirety of what I think. In that understanding, I would agree with you. Um, but more broadly, I feel like one of the major virtues that Aristotle drives home is essential and kind of the almost the paradigm of the good life that that captures all the other essential virtues is uh, magnanimity, mm-hmm. um, which can also be kind of translated as, as pride, which <laughs> we as Christians would call a vice, actually, and. Um, I mean, it's it, he's not describing it as a vicious thing, but there are elements of it which are very much opposed to meekness. For example, like he talks about the magnanimous man or the, or the proud man. Um, uh, he does not engage in actions which he sees as as like unbecoming of him or like uh, unworthy of his attention. Mm-hmm. So like imagine in, in like the context of a city, if like there's a the man with the virtue of magnanimity or, or pride. And if there's some like achievement that needs to be done or to or someone that needs to be helped, but it's kind of just small scale and it's not going to earn him a lot of glory, then he's like, no, I'm not going to do that because it's unworthy uh, of him. And he, he describes literally like the looks and characteristics and like movements 
of this proud or magnanimous man. And it's all very kind of haughty. Mm. And um, like you said, as he sees it, it's flowing out of an awareness that he is good and yeah. that he is a virtuous. So that's why Aristotle actually identifies as kind of the, the ornament that comes with all the other virtues. Once you have all the other virtues, then you are this one comes along with it. So it's not for him rooted in uh, vice. It's not rooted in necessarily like too much ego. It's the shining of virtue. It's the shining of virtue, but the way in which it manifests itself is Sounds almost indiscernible from, from And egotism. that's clearly the exact opposite of how Christ, because he said, you know, learn from me for I am meek and humble of heart. Mm-hmm. That, it would the little simplest things in the yeah. gospels is definitely what Christ cares about. Mm-hmm. You know, Zacchaeus, mm-hmm. you know, the little man climbing in the tree, right. the woman who just touched the tassel of his cloak. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those things would seem to be like, oh, well, that's beneath me. Christ mm-hmm. who is God, like, oh, well, right. just coming to earth at all. Yeah, exactly. Is, is, is unworthy of God. Right. Who is pure magnet. Magnanimity. Mag- magnanimity. Magnanimity. That's great, great soulness. Okay, great soulness. So you know, God who is that, mm-hmm. to come down to earth is the total, almost abasement of Absolutely. that magnanimity. I didn't think about that, but that, that's huge. Just that itself. The incarnation would be unworthy of a magnanimous man. Yeah. I mean, and you know, even within that, yeah, the other, all, all the things Christ did in ministering to the people uh, would be opposed to that. Because like the magnanimous man would never have said, you know, let the little children come to me or yeah. would never have dined with prostitutes and sinners. Exactly. But that's what, that's what Christ did. All right. So another one, um, blessed are the clean of heart for they will see God. We're skipping a couple, uh, just to, just to clarify yeah. we're, we're oh. not going to cover all the Beatitudes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. this, well, this we, is, I guess we could, should we do just two at a time real quick and just kind of go through them quick? Um, yeah. I mean, we still have a, a, a few, still so got a little bit of time, right? um, Let's let's go ahead. Just do what you said. Blessed are the blessed are the clean of heart, for they will see God. I think in some sense, Aristotle would pretty strongly agree with this. You, if you're not clean of heart, and how how could you purely focus on yeah. contemplation? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think this is another translation is the pure of heart, mm-hmm. and uh, at least according to the monastic tradition, the pure heart is one that is undivided mm-hmm. between earthly and heavenly things. Mm-hmm. So if you have a pure heart then you're able to better turn to God and to focus on God. So, yeah, right. I think Aristotle would say, yeah, if your heart's not divided, you're definitely more suited to happiness yeah. because you're focused on what is above rather than mm-hmm. what is below. Right. So, that again, yeah. not all the Beatitudes are opposed to Aristotelian happiness, but but some some very much seem to be. Um, the later ones yeah. start getting a little bit wild. Um, well, Blessed are they, so this is verse 10, blessed are they who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Hmm. Um, is it, I don't know, is, is it, would it be good for Aristotle to be persecuted for what is right? Regardless, I don't think so, no. I, really? Regardless of whether it's for the right reason or the wrong reason, um, I think persecution would be an impediment to happiness for him. Uh, our, actually, uh, my awesome professor, Mr. Appleby, he's the funniest guy ever. Uh, at college, he would always like, he always make funny examples whenever we were discussing this kind of stuff. But he he said, yeah, for Aristotle, you know, the the virtuous or good-hearted man who's in a gulag is not happy. You know, if, he, mm. if he's suffering in a gulag, he's not happy. It, the circumstances around you, it can't just be for Aristotle, your interior disposition that's rightly ordered for you to be happy. You also need the circumstances around you to be conducive to a happy life. So if you're being persecuted, that's, that's not a conducive life to to true happiness. Wow. That's so limiting. It like, is. How could you force I mean, I guess that's what he's talking about. That's why it's the literally city. The, it's the rich um yeah. and powerful who are virtuous and intelligent. 
So every uh, everyone else takes care of all of their other needs. Yeah, essentially. Yeah, yeah it's the 1% who experience the fulfillment of happiness. The other 99% Trip, um, contribute uh, contribute to, to it and so they can be called happy insofar as they contribute that's okay i whereas we believe in god who you know goes for the one well the 99 even yeah even if the 99 were happy christ pursues the one who is unhappy mm. <laughs> to bring him into the fold so persecution not not a vibe for aristotle and that certainly doesn't sound something like that we would think of that oh i am persecuted therefore i am blessed therefore mm-hmm. i am happy again right very counterintuitive in a way, um, Aristotle's idea is more intuitive. Yeah, yeah, you know, absolutely. Um, but just constantly reminding ourselves that God is just God's as uh, you know, God says, "My ways are so above your ways, mm-hmm. and so are my thoughts above your thoughts." So yeah. when we or we face suffering, we face persecution, and it seems mm-hmm. like that God needs to take care of this first before I fully rely on him, before I can fully trust in him or whatever, mm-hmm. that no, he's inviting us to it through those things. Right. And he's not like Aristotle saying like, well, you need to get beyond them before you reach happiness. He's mm-hmm. saying happiness is right through this. Exactly. You can have it right now amidst the suffering and sometimes almost because of them, which is, it, it is interesting that you're saying his his ways and thoughts are so above ours that they're, they do seem paradoxical to us. Because in a way, Aristotle's understanding is kind of the best idea that our reason could get, could. could get to. Because when you reason it out, okay, you need uh, virtue. That seems good because if you don't have virtue, you're going to live a chaotic life. That's going to feel bad. And But you also need like some amount of wealth and riches. That's why people, you know, strive for wealth. And even nowadays, like people who aren't Aristotelian, if they're trying to, you know, craft a good life for themselves or what they think is a happy life, they pursue power or pleasure or possessions. Mm, mm-hmm. And Aristotle's like a little bit of balance of that. You need enough of that and you also need virtue. So it's kind of like he has he has kind of the most intuitive answer that our rationality would reach for. Yeah. But Christ's idea is just so radically uh counterintuitive and yeah almost in some ways opposed to our rationality. That's where faith comes in. Right. Yeah. Well, I just real quick want to look at the very last one for one word particularly. Uh, blessed are they, blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you and utter every kind of evil against you falsely because mm. of me. Um, that word falsely I th- is especially, I think, problematic for yeah. Aristotle because the virtuous man is recognized for being virtuous, mm-hmm. right? Whereas yeah. these people are clearly virtuous because they're, suffering for Christ and they're doing what is good. But then people are saying bad things and insulting them, slandering them falsely. Yeah. Um, So it's just like a double-edged, it's yeah, not a double-edged sword, whatever I'm trying to say, but it's It's just twice as bad. Exactly. You know? (laughs) Yeah. Um, So not only are they enduring persecution, like what you already talked about, Mm -hmm. but they're being slandered. uh, So it's also an injustice aside from just pain. It's also injustice. Yeah. Which to suffer injustice would, is ultimately, going to distract you or take you away from what is good you know because mm-hmm. the good life is also the perfectly just life totally yeah um, it's one of the most foundational virtues itself yeah so it's just it's just crazy um how radically different these two views are even though in a lot of ways if you look at aristotle's philosophy I mean, it makes sense it's as kind of as beautiful a philosophy as you can get a, apart from christianity and a lot of what he says i would follow in order to totally. achieve the level of yeah. what Christ calls us to in the Beatitudes. Right. And even the way he goes about pursuing virtue or his, his kind of guidelines for pursuing virtue seem, naturally speaking, genius. Yeah. But it, it's funny how the results are so totally different. Um, I guess all this is captured in my mind in that one verse of St. Paul from, I think it's Philippians. Uh, 
Philippians 2, is that what you're referring to? Yeah, that we have pulled up about Christ. Basically, he said, um, we have it pulled up, thankfully. Uh, Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave coming in human likeness and found human in appearance. He humbled himself. So I I just want to focus in on one of the words there. He says Christ, you know, because he, uh, he he knew that we wouldn't be able to comprehend him as being equal to God. He took the form of a slave, and I think that particular word is hugely important because um, in Aristotle's account of a whole community, and like I said, he identifies happiness as a common good. Mm -hmm. Within the community, there are, like I said, the 1%, the the wealthy and and kind of uh, peaceful and contented who are able to live this life of total happiness. And then below them, there are all kind of the the ordinary workers and artisans contributing to the community. But then at the very bottom of the totem pole, there are those that he would call the natural slaves. Mm. And some people debate whether or not he really thought those are, that's a real sort of person. But basically they're, they're people that he identifies as just the kind of people that are naturally going to turn out as uh, kind of the slaves and the runts of society that are just going to be purely uh, good as, as useful instruments. And they, they don't, they can't have like much virtue, they can't really contribute anything intellectually. They're only uh, basically useful as servants. Hmm. And those slaves, because they can't have virtue and they're obviously not going to become rich, could never. they could never attain happiness. Wow. They could never have the fulfillment of happiness. But we believe in Christ. And according to that the translation of that scripture, he took the form not just of a man, but of a slave. So he became the lowest I guess he took on the lowest role imaginable. So Christ, yeah, showing that one, that he is able to redeem all mm-hmm. in every position and that all actually are able to be brought into the happiness that he desires them, um, but that he was even willing to almost sacrifice a logical happiness mm-hmm. in order to redeem us. Right. In order for the sake of true beatific happiness. Yeah. And just thinking about the Beatitudes and, and to close, I remember my novice master, we went over the Beatitudes in kind of relation to the monastic life. And he said that, you know, Christ says, blessed are they or happy are they um, who da, 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 whatever. And that Christ on the cross is the perfect fulfillment of every Beatitude. Wow. You know, he is, he is meek. Mm-hmm. Um, he is being persecuted for the sake of righteousness. He's mourning. He says, I am, I thirst. Right. Um, he's poor in spirit. You know, God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Mm-hmm. Um, it, he is, he is literally restoring peace between God and humanity through mm-hmm. his sacrifice. So that is Christ on the cross counterintuitively where it looks like he is deprived of all forms of happiness that is truly most happy. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Aristotle would say Christ on the cross is the antithesis to the good life and the happy life mm-hmm. that in Christianity is actually the utter fulfillment of it. Um, so that if we desire to be happy, yeah, we a lot of Aristotle's philosophy definitely can help us mm-hmm. gain there, but ultimately it is crucifixion and conformity to Christ on the cross right. That and living out the Beatitudes that really will bring us to the actual good life. That's beautiful. That's so cool to, to see that in uh, the sacrifice of Calvary, that that was the embodiment of Christian happiness in a way. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, of course, there's, heaven is true well, ultimate yeah, yeah. happiness, yeah, but like that—that but... that is the example that was set for us by God himself. And it's just so so interesting, like you said, that it's illogical in a sense. Yeah. And I like to think that Christ was the incarnation of the Logos, uh, not yeah. not of 
he was not the incarnation of logic, you know, hmm. he, like he, he was the incarnate word, but he's not incarnate logic. Cause sometimes the things he say are kind of opposed to our natural sensibilities as rational creatures, but they call us to a higher way of living. Well, that's why St. Paul says that the cross is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Mm-hmm. Actually, he says foolishness to Greeks in one translation because <laughs> it's like they understand Aristotle, right? And right. they understand it's like, no, no, there's no way that that's right. Right. That's the opposite of happiness. So, you know, that's a struggle for us. Like, you know, how, how is suffering? How is How can we live out these beatitudes, whatever? But um, really, that's something to really think about, conforming our life to the crucified Savior. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yeah, so hope you guys enjoyed that. Did a little bit of discussion on happiness and sort of the, the conflict that we do see between our own intuitive understandings of happiness and, and that which Aristotle shared and the kind that Christ calls us to. But uh, hopefully you guys enjoy that and, and can share that with other people. Yeah, so we'd love to hear if you enjoyed it, if you learned something. Um, yeah, awesome. Please uh, give us a rating, a thumbs up, or whatever. Um, and we hope you continue to join us in our journey together. So uh, thank you for listening for another episode of All Good in the Brotherhood. We hope you have a wonderful and God-blessed day. And a most bodacious day. Peace out.